This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. In previous shows, Marcus and I talked about what it means to be in relationship with one another. We asked questions like, what do we mean when we employ the word relationship? And what does it mean to build truly authentic and genuine relationships? In other words, relationships that are not simply transactional or superficial. We've been exploring these questions in the context of ongoing conversations with members of the 2020-2022 William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations class. We're going to continue our discussion around those and other related questions today, and we're going to be joined by another member of that class as we proceed through this show. Uh, Marcus, again, I'm really glad to know that Dr. Meredith Doster is actually going to join us again uh, Meredith is becoming quite um, uh, quite the celebrity, I understand, out out there in Asheville. Um, people are recognizing and hearing her voice, but we're going to be glad to have her voice back on the show again today. Yeah, always a pleasure to have Dr. Doster with us. <laughs> yeah, but before we get started with the heart of this show, you know, we always like to take the time to thank you all in the audience for joining us. Marcus and I are always uh, really uh, excited to get the feedback that we do from you all. As you know, that this is a new series of shows that we're starting here this time around, brother. And um, and it was nice to hear that people were excited that we had new shows that were getting ready to be aired on Blue Ridge Public Radio. As I, you know, and, and I, as I said in the past, I, I have come to conceptualize our show as an ongoing conversation, right? Mm-hmm. So one gigantic, what, three or four year long conversation. And I think part of what made, what has made that, um, that the show as a, as a gigantic conversation so rich is um, the involvement of, you know, folks in the community um, in Asheville proper and also people mm-hmm. um, in other parts of the state mm-hmm. who are engaging with, um, with the topics that we explore on the show, uh, posing questions to us, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, challenging us um, in certain ways, we're challenging them. And so, yeah, it's, it's it, I, as I've said before, I'm, I'm always, um, I'm always receptive, right, to, to that kind of feedback, to learn that mm-hmm. people are continuing to engage. This really, you know, what is an ongoing conversation that, that you and I have kind of been uh, constructing and reconstructing <laughs> over the course of the year, over the, over the yeah. course of uh, the last few years. It is. It's been an ongoing conversation between the two of us. And I think that the audience has heard us talk about uh, these conversations spilling over into kind of after show moments. And we get on the phone and we'll say, "Okay, we're only going to be here for a few minutes. And it turns into another hour, an hour and a half conversation. But, you know, Marcus, these conversations have deeply enriched my life. Um, Not only the conversations that you and I have had, but the conversations that we've been having with guests. And it's odd, you know, our lives, we're we're very busy. You at the university, me now in this new role, which we talked about a lot in the last show, uh, serving as the deputy secretary for uh, the Office of Archives and History in the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. I'm traveling across the state. I'm meeting a lot of new people, even, you know, before I I stepped into this role, um, you know, which is really 
you know, centered around the preservation of the North Carolina story. Meredith likes to mm-hmm. use the word container. I have taken that word. And because we, we do exist in these containers, Asheville is a container, which is home for me. Mm-hmm. So I still feel the connection to Asheville. And then North Carolina is a container. You know, it. what does it mean, you know, to live in that space, in that container? And I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to talk about that a lot. Uh, in the larger sense with people across the state. But that conversation has started of looking across the state of North Carolina because of the conversations we were having with the Friday Fellows, because they come from different locations in different regions of the state. And it's interesting to hear the work that they're doing in their own individual communities. I think, you know, Marcus, you and I've talked about this. Sometimes, you know, we can be very myopic in the way that we look at things and we don't necessarily hear and see these larger projects that are taking place in communities across the state. It's been exciting for me traveling across the state to see a lot that is going on in so many of these communities. People are serious about their histories. They're serious about preservation. They're serious about trying to build and actually uh, strengthen the sense of community throughout the state. And I just marvel at that. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is an important point to think about because I think often in our respective um, life projects, if I can use that language, um, there's a tendency to to feel very balkanized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're over there doing your thing. I'm over here doing this thing. He's over, mm-hmm. he's over there doing that thing. And to go back to my point about conversation and the value of conversation as a kind of, of as a kind of practice, right? I think the conversation becomes a way to bring different life projects together, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of where they are unfolding regionally, right? And so, um, you know, co- conversation becomes a, a kind of practice of relationship, right? Right, it um, does. That, that, that allows us to, that allows us to talk about um, our work across regional lines, across social lines, across cultural lines, right? Um, and, and again, I think that just really underscores the, the value of the show as as an example of what it means to practice conversation as a form of relationship, right? And right. so, you know, and I, as I've said before, my, my prediction is that, you know, the conversation that we've been building on this show will only be enriched by the work that you're doing now right. um, at the state level. And so mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm excited to see where things go. Right. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Marcus. We, we, as we've been talking before. We're, we're all going through a hard season right now of trying to deal with the issues surrounding uh, COVID being in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Who thought we would be here and that we would still be here dealing with this? But this is still remains an issue. Marcus and I deeply hope that you all out there in the listening audience are staying safe and that you're staying healthy. Um, and doing what is necessary to, to kind of protect yourself. And, and we look forward to the day when we come out the other side of this. Marcus, this was a challenge. Uh, even before I left the, the university, it was a challenge, you know, you being in the classroom. I've got to ask here before we go into the deeper part of this conversation, you know, you're back in class. I know that this semester had to start kind of virtually, but now you've kind of moved back to that in-person space. What are you seeing out there and how are students respond? Yeah, it, it's it's a very, um, I would say overall, it's, it's been somewhat of a disjointed start. Um, we started the semester remotely. Um, second week, uh, we 
uh, went in person. But um, within the last, what, six days alone, uh, you know, several students have let me have informed me that they have COVID or they've been exposed to someone who has COVID. And so um, that creates questions as to, well, do I continue to meet in person? Do I, you know, try something? Um, do, do I, you know, try a hybrid approach? Mm -hmm. uh, do I decide to go fully remote for the rest of the semester. Uh, it, it really is just kind of a mess. I'll just say it. I mean, it really is just kind of a kind of a hot mess to use a colloquial term. But let me let me just say this quickly about about the, the pandemic. Um, and, you know, folks may not want to hear this, but but if there is any silver lining in all of this chaos, it, it is to me that um, it, it there's a way in which we are all being forced to pause. Mm -hmm. Right. We're all being forced to pause and kind of rest with ourselves and think with ourselves and be with be present to ourselves in ways that we may not want to mm -hmm. <laughs> and in ways that may otherwise not even be possible. Um, and so, you know, as annoying as this is, as as frightening as it is for some people, as much of an inconvenience um, as it is and continues to be, um, something that helps me is to is to think about the the opportunity that that COVID and now Omicron right, right. Um, has has provided with respect to um, being present to, to ourselves right mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. taking the time to reflect on um, on life right on right. on uh, on a number of other things that otherwise you know we may not receive our our attention so right uh that may not be satisfying to, <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners but you know I'm, I'm trying to find ways to think about our present situation um, um that are not and what you know i'm trying to find ways to think about it um that are not um frustrating that are not defined by you know um just just negativity i'm trying to find something constructive to to take away from all of this. Right, so I would right. just I would just offer that as a possible constructive takeaway in all of right. this um, insanity. Well, Marcus, you know, you 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 potentially open up a whole new door uh, there <laughs> that we could really go down. Um, yes. And, and just really think about because I think this is really important in our fast paced world. And, you know, I did not last time that we we did the show. I did not bring up the name Alexis de Tocqueville. But, you know, just for, you know, for good measure, I have to do it. Yes. <laughs> I just have to bring it up today. You know, this is one of the things he you know, he he reflected upon. America's a fast paced. We're very fast paced. We don't like pause. We don't really like, you know, sitting with ourselves. I think. You know, where you might find that to be different, some might argue, is to look at Southern culture. Southern, Southern culture does have a component of that is that is built in. You look at the old world, I think about the spaces that you study, you know, in, in the continent of Africa. These are concepts that are important to the way those communities and so those societies have developed. So I think it's, it's it maybe worth yeah. having that conversation yeah. more deeply. Right? Well, so, well, let, let me say this, too. I think I think um, one of one of the reasons, and this is something that I've, I actually was kind of talking about with my humanities class today, so I'll just say this quickly before we move on. But I, I think that one of the reasons um, America seems to prefer a, a sort of fast-paced, forward-looking way of being in the world is that um, I, I, there's an awareness, I think, um, um, either conscious or subconscious, there's an awareness that um, America is profoundly haunted by the ghost of its past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And um, the more we focus on moving forward, right, on being fast-paced, right, uh, the more we can, uh, you know, the less the less haunted we feel by by the specter of the American past, which is so vexing and so troubling, right? But the but here's, but here's the thing about 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 ghosts of the past—they don't really go away. No, right. And eventually you, they catch you up. You can run. Right? Yeah, you can run as fast as you want to run. But eventually something, something in life will slow your butt down. Right, right. And when, right. You, and when you slow down, the ghost will be there. Right. And the question will be, okay, when you slow, and I think, it, again, back to my earlier point, COVID is forcing us to slow down. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity now to turn around and look at the ghost, learn from them, talk to them, engage them, wrestle with them. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to focus our energies and time on trying to find an escape hatch? All right. All right. That will allow us to resume our ceaseless sprint into the future, away from the ghost of the past. And so, anyway, I, I, that's one of the ways that I think about the Tocqueville's analysis, right, of the mm-hmm. United States is this very sort of um, um, forward-focused um, society. Mm-hmm. Yep, America. It's a deep, very deep, and I tell you, worth us coming back to. Um, and I think that it probably will emerge in the conversation that we want to have here. And, and let's just kind of pivot to that. You know, we, you know, Meredith, Dr. Meredith Doster is here with us again. I've had the great pleasure of both Marcus and she's a colleague to both you and I, Marcus, but I've had the opportunity to work very closely with Meredith over the past nearly, it's going on two years. I can't believe the two years of this fellowship is upon us. But Meredith and I have been working very closely together as members of the faculty, she's the lead faculty member for the William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations. And um, Meredith, thank you for joining us again today. Before you join in and we hear your voice, let me just also say that the fellow who is joining us today, who is a member of this class, is Mr. Kevin Rumley. Some of you in Asheville will probably recognize his name. I'm proud to have him here because he's a former student of mine as well uh, at UNC Asheville, a graduate of UNC Asheville. I don't know if Kevin wants to talk about that. We might talk about that a little bit in this conversation. <laughs> but right now, Kevin, he lives in Asheville. And he is the coordinator of the Buncombe County Veterans Treatment Court. And I think that he's going to talk to us about that. He is himself a veteran. He served in the Marine Corps. And I want to thank him for the service that he that he gave. And um, and Kevin, we look forward to to you joining this conversation. But welcome to the show today, Kevin. Thank you. Honored to be here. All right. Well, it's good to have you here, Meredith. Welcome back. We're glad that and excited to have you. And I'm sure that your friends out there in the audience are glad. We'll be glad to hear your voice as well. Well, thank you. I am. I'm always glad to be in conversation with you both. And such a pleasure to have Kevin, a Western North Carolina colleague here on the call with us today as well. Um, so many things come to mind, just thinking briefly with you about um, where we are today in relation to this two-year journey that Friday Fellows are are bringing to a close later this year. It is remarkable to reflect back on uh, two years of a largely pandemic calibrated fellowship experience. And so, Marcus, to your point, what does it really take to slow down long enough to look back and reflect and remember the four pillars of part of the Friday Fellowship designed for this class, rest, reflection, reckoning, and relationship. And I think it it takes intention to, to stop and to look back uh, at where we've been. Um, Something that just came to mind as you were talking so poignantly about 
the pandemic and its call to pause. We spend a lot of time thinking about P words in the fellowship. <laughs> Friends and colleagues know that I love alliteration more than most things. And we've landed hard on the P, P words with this class. And so I think that in the pandemic, it's invitation to pause, it's invitation to think through any number of things. You know, I'm mindful that um, in as much as we can look about sort of um, life in this moment, it is an invitation also to think about death and what death, the specter of death in this moment is so unique, although it's not, um, it's not out of the ordinary in other ways. And I think um, I'm mindful that the question the fellows are tackling this weekend as we gather back together is what must I do to die a good death? And if you want to reframe that, you know, how must, what must I do to live a good life? But I don't want to rush to that reframe, right? I want to sit with what does it mean to actually look at the specter of death or the surprise or the standing invitation to think that way. And of course, um, there's a lot of different ways that um, death is understood uh, and navigated. And I think I'll be curious too to invite Kevin into that conversation, yeah. but I'm I'm just mindful that it's just um, a season. And I know that in part because I am tired. Um, I am I am navigating fatigue. I was on a call this morning with some students at Emory where I run a research lab. And one of them gifted this most beautiful turn of phrase that I'm sure is a thing in the world that I've just never heard. And he talked about um, the assumption of familiarity. We were doing it. Uh, we were having a discussion about you know, close reading assignment. And he said, you know, I feel like we're making some assumptions about familiarity. There's an assumption of familiarity in the room. And I, in, I had, as I was thinking about that, I was like, oh, well, that's so interesting in relation to concepts of like decision fatigue. Like I'm fatigued. And there's assumptions of familiarity. I'm playing around. You can hear alliteration at work here again. I'm like, mm, how do I get from this fatigue to this sense of familiarity where we think we know what's happening, but we haven't paused long enough to actually learn the lessons that are being gifted right now. And some are learning them for us. And I think that's really, really sobering. And so I'm just mindful that, you know, we'll have fellows gathering virtually because of course we need to host a virtual convening right now. We also have fellows gathering residentially because of course people are tired of gathering virtually, right? So it's just a complex season. Um, and I don't wanna take up any more space really on this call <laughs> other than to note that I'm delighted to be here um, and I'm excited um, to, to be present for the conversation and to, to hear uh, how Kevin and you all um, step into a conversation together. So well, thank you for having me. Well, you're listening to the Waters and Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. So welcome back to the Waters and Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Again, Marcus and I are in conversation today with a member of the William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations, a class, one of the fellows. And we, we have been talking with those of you who have been with us. We've been talking with Dr. Meredith Doster, who is the lead faculty member for the fellowship, who I've had the pleasure of working with. 
And we're glad that you stayed with us for this conversation. And we, we want to bring Kevin, uh, Mr. Kevin Rumley, into the conversation now. You've already heard him say hello. Kevin, thanks for being here again. And, you know, I think I just simply want to start with the, the question about your uh, time in the uh, William Friday Fellowship. You know, what what attracted you to the fellowship? How did you get connected with this with with this group? Yeah, I think the uh, I was introduced to the fellowship through a Friday fellow from a cohort uh, two cohorts ago, and just uh, I saw a, a picture on her wall that I happened to ask about. This is at her office, and uh, she started telling this experience of people across North Carolina coming together, doing these convenings, these gatherings, and really they would explore everything. The, the premise is learning how to communicate across difference, which I love right there. You can see it on the website. If you know, you look it up. Okay. That's what it is. Um, so that piqued my interest. And then she shared kind of these exercises of, uh, you know, relationship building and learning how to truly be in conversation, how to be vulnerable, how to um, how to show up in different places, stuff that I had never really heard. It's just it was kind of a, a new language that this Friday fellow was using. And I think the snowball of interest kept growing for me um, and I just followed it forward a little bit more. And then I ended up having a conversation with Meredith over the phone because I had a lot of questions. What is this Friday <laughs> fellowship? I don't understand. And you get to go to cool places in North Carolina and learn North Carolina history. And, but it's also about all these other things. So it's, and honestly, uh, Darren, I am still figuring out what the Friday fellowship is. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It is the journey and not the destination. And oh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So I might have a better answer at the end of the <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's an ongoing journey, brother. Please yeah. jump in here. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin, you know, I like how you phrase that because uh, knowing Dr. Doster as I do, she is very much a uh, journey over destination kind of a person. So I think you're already <laughs> you're already sort of getting it, um, so to speak. But um, so, you know, we mentioned earlier, um, Kevin, that, you know, you're a military veteran. You work on a daily basis uh, with veterans, which I imagine is challenging on a number of levels. Um, can you talk a little bit about 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 that work? Um, what does that work look like for you? What are some of the challenges that you face in that in that in that role? Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with the Veterans Treatment Court in Asheville, North Carolina. There are only four Veterans Treatment Courts in North Carolina. Uh, it's a two-year program, a diversion court for justice-involved veterans. So instead of sending a veteran to prison, where we know nothing really changes, um, we are saying, you know what, we want to spend time working on the core issues that led to your justice engagement, which are often unaddressed mental health, unaddressed suffering, unaddressed addiction, uh, homelessness, kind of these very basic uh, things that I think as a society, we don't do a great job Mm. of supporting. And uh, we every day show up, we have a cohort of 30 veterans roughly that go through this program at a time. Um, and when a veteran graduates our program, their charges are dismissed. The 
bulk of what I do is really sit and be present with these veterans. I get to see them twice a week. Uh, They are on probation. They have all of these requirements. They're going to treatment every single day. It's a very intense program. We're in front of the judge every week. Uh, All of this accountability, which is needed. And we are a public safety program because we know if you just go to prison, behaviors don't change. But if we work to really Mm -hmm. address the underlying suffering, that's how the change happens. And hopefully a person won't uh, re-offend. But my, my work, and I'm a social worker, I feel like is all about relationship and being present, kind of this idea of reciprocity and honoring their story where they're at. Um, and it is, it's the relationship that I get to spend with them for two years. Um, it's, it's funny, I'm in school for social work right now too. And you learn all these interesting interventions with different trademark names and cognitive behavior therapies and all of these. But at the end of the day, what I'm seeing is that it is all about relationship. Mm-hmm. And if I have this trust with another human being and together we're walking this journey, um, they're bouncing ideas off me. I'm bouncing ideas off them. And uh, that is the change process. Darn. You hey, know, Kevin, Kevin, I have to, I have to just ask a quick follow-up um, question if, 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 if you will allow me. Um, and, and again, I, I think this is an, this is amazing work that you're involved in. Um, I, I, I'm wondering, um, you know, as, as much as um, military service is um, celebrated in this country, lauded, Right, it's often lifted up as, as one of the highest forms of service that you know an American citizen can provide for the country. It seems to me that the that the support infrastructure, right, the support infrastructure for military veterans, um, is rather anemic, right. And, and this is something that I find um, a little bit ironic, <laughs> right, and confusing given how much investments, right? The, the country ha, ha, has historically in its military apparatus, um, how much is invested in like convincing people, American citizens, you know, that they should consider military service or all these benefits. So my question is, and, and, I, and not to just dump all this on you, but I'm just curious to hear some preliminary thoughts. Why this anemic infrastructure of support? Why, why this anemic support infrastructure, right? When on the front end, there's all of this investment, all of this um, energy, this, this enthusiastic energy around, around military service. So, so any thoughts about that, um, Kevin? Uh, I, I mean, that is, that's a really big question. And it is, it's the challenge we face every day. When I was in the Marine Corps, it was, I was trained how to kill for four years. And this is something that isn't talked a lot about, but my my purpose as a Marine was to destroy other humans. Mm-hmm. And they got really good at this. They have it down to a science. And then when you are transitioning to the civilian world, you have a day, or it's longer now, but when I was in, it was like a day of PowerPoints. Like, all right, you're going back into the community. Mm. And we, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to your question. I should just lead with that. I have no, no, no. <laughs> But I see it every day. I know 
there's a quote by Sebastian Younger that he says, while our veterans are willing to die for their country, they return home to find they're not sure how to live for it. Mm. And it's, it is just this anemic uh, resourcing for veterans. It's just, it is not kind of the mythology behind it of the heroism of getting out of the service and becoming a hero as a civilian, a hero as a constituency, as a, a member of truly the community. Um, but yeah, I don't have an answer. Right. Okay. No, that's and helpful. Kevin, Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, that and Kevin, I, you know, Marcus, it was a great question. And, and I was thinking along the same lines, Kevin, the, you know, we, we, you know, you've taken history classes with me. We both kind of love history, you know, and, and, and studying the history, especially of the 20th century. Um, and I wonder, is there ever, has there ever been a time as a as a country when we've we have done well by veterans? Right. Um, I think about what people talk about with the the greatest generation and the GI Bill and all that was involved there. And this is kind of bubbling to the surface for me now because there's so much discussion now in the country about the whole idea of America as a meritocracy, right? And how the World War II generation through the GI Bill really was able to, to take advantage of this kind of metriarchic idea of a meritocracy and move in that direction. But we've now kind of lost that. That has become it is that has become problematic. So so my question is really, has there ever been a time? Do you do you agree with this kind of uh, assessment of the World War II generation and the GI Bill as being a time when we, we were a little bit more intentional about what we did for our veterans? Well, I, having also been a student of yours, Dr. Water, <laughs> I would argue no. Okay. I, would argue, <laughs> I mean, we, we just know this. We can say this was the greatest period, the greatest uh, fighting generation, and we've never had support for veterans like we did after World War II. The reality is right now to be a veteran in America is probably the best time ever to be a veteran. Now, it's not saying we're doing a great job at it. We have the best VA hospital in the nation here in Asheville, but that means we also have veterans traveling from Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, and they're overburdened. We have more veteran resources in Asheville than most places that I've ever been to. And I've been to California, D.C. all over because I was injured in the service. But I, I definitely don't think we're at a destination. We have 20 veterans committing suicide every single day. We have increased rates of post-traumatic stress higher than they've ever been for service members. We've been in decade-long war. This is just it's a, a new frontier with new needs. I benefited from Voc Rehab, which started after World War II. I was able to go to UNCA. Um, and I should say, I, I struggled with addiction for many years, an addiction that was introduced because of being injured in the Marine Corps, uh, opioids. And I struggled for years. And my undergraduate experience ended up taking 11 years because I just wasn't at a place where I also wanted to receive help. Mm -hmm. But Oak Rehab and the GI Bill continued to support me and in ways that I think the previous GI Bill wouldn't have. They recognized, oh, we know uh, addiction's a disease. Mm -hmm. that, that was a new advancement. 
that was not always that it used to be a meritocracy if you can't no, right, right. degree in four years get out of here we're not paying for you mm-hmm. so it, in a lot of ways we've come a long way um also uh racially you know the gi bill was provided to white veterans but not black veterans mm-hmm. with housing supports after world war ii so um yeah I, you know, I got to be with you, Doctor. Right, that's right. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad for that perspective. I mean, it's a perspective that I think we need, we do need to hear. Um, Kevin, you know, if we can turn, you brought up this, the, the, the term social work. All right, do we have a healthy understanding in this country of what that is? You know, I think. You know, when you bring up the issue of social work, my mind as a historian goes back to the progressive era. I think immediately Jane Adams, Jane Adams in Hull House in Chicago comes to mind and the women who went into this field of social work. Um, do we have a healthy understanding in this country of what this is? And if not, you know, what could you do to help, you know, us and, and especially our listening audience better understand what, what this is, what social work is. I am fascinated by this idea of social work. I am a licensed clinical social worker through the state of North Carolina. I went to Western Carolina University for my master's in social work. And I have just started a program at the University of Tennessee, a doctorate in social work. So here I am, I'm, I'm as social work as you can get, and I am feeling more and more that I, I have no clue what it means. Am I just a well-intentioned white person continuing this form of oppression by bringing in what was handed to me, my privilege, or my, it's, how am I continuing something without first pausing and asking, what is this population? Mm-hmm. I do this every day. I have to slow down with the veterans I work with because I'm a veteran. Mm-hmm. Am I projecting onto the veterans I work with? Oh, you know what, veteran A, don't even tell me your story. I know your story because I lived it. You don't mm-hmm. even need to talk. I'm here to help. It is, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a struggle, I think. And we, have to slow down. We were talking about this kind of before how the the pandemic has forced us to slow down as a nation. It's forced me to slow down and ask myself, what does it mean to be a a social worker and try to help another human being on their journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm I'm thinking also, um, Kevin, uh, about this, this cat, this, 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 uh, because I I think I, I would probably want to call it a vocation, right? This social work vocation. Um, I'm thinking also about the specific needs uh, that uh, that veterans have, right, with respect to social work-based interventions that the general public uh, probably isn't aware of, right? Um, that's the, that the civilian population isn't aware of, right? Um, so could you so could you talk a little bit based upon your experience? I know that you know. I'm, you know, you don't know everything, but based upon your your experience thus far in the in the social work field, um, focusing particularly on veterans, what what kinds? You know, you mentioned your own issues uh, with addiction previously. Um, what are some of the, the 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 primary needs, right? That 
um, that veterans have that social work interventions are particularly effective at at sort of assisting. And also, um, is it your observation that um, veterans coming from different racial backgrounds, right? So African-American veterans versus white veterans versus, you know, um, Asian descended veterans. So do the sort of constellations, the constellation of needs vary from one racial group of veterans to the next? Or, or do you notice, you know, surprising commonalities um, between different, different, different groups of veterans? Yeah, there are, I should start, veterans aren't a monolith obviously. And um, I just from my little lens being in the justice system, uh, the American system of justice is arguably the oldest form of white supremacy. This is the pathway that it has been conveyed, it has been maintained through this. And so I'm I'm operating in that. It's, It's just the truth. And we know that veterans of color are more likely to be upcharged and overcharged for the same offense as their white counterpart. And then if we look at diversion courts, like I'm a part of, we know that veterans of color are uh, less likely to have successful outcomes than the white counterparts. What are all the factors that lead to this in Asheville? Um, just providing culturally congruent care, just having a clinician of color for a veteran of color, very basic thing that isn't always possible at different, um, at maybe our VA, because we just have a shortage of clinicians of color. It's a reality. Same with, uh, doctors and psychiatrists. So there are different outcomes. I'm, my social work brain leads me to kind of the structural and systemic factors that lead to different outcomes. Um, but we are also seeing that veterans are, have better outcomes when they work with other veterans. They have really the reason there is a veterans court in the first place isn't because we want to honor veterans. Oh, we, It's not because you sacrifice more. We need the special court just for veterans. We have drug courts and sobriety courts. But the reason we have these distinct courts is because when you have shared lived experience, you together can achieve more. And that is what we're seeing. We really are trying to, in my work, create a a tribe, a healthy tribe, which is a sense of purpose and a sense of connection and there's a, a quote by uh, this author. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about trauma. And he says, at the end of the day, all human suffering is trauma, unless it's organic, kind of like schizophrenia and um, organic nature, that all human suffering is trauma. And trauma to him meant the inability to generate meaningful relationships with other humans And then number two, the inability to self-regulate our body when it is kind of in that activated state, which is a trauma response. And so I I really see connection as this great balm or this this healing force. And to answer your question, that is um, across all veterans. That is something we have. And I love it, by the way. I love meeting 
older veterans like World War II Marines and Vietnam era. And here I am, you know, a 30 something younger Marine. And instantly, if you say Semper Fi or Oorah or any of these kind of uh, sayings, you have rapport with that veteran. So it's a cool thing. All right. Well, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I think you, I hope at least, Marcus, that everyone is enjoying this conversation with Kevin Rumley, who is a current member of the William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations class. And Kevin, we've been talking a lot about your work uh, with the Veterans Court, and um, we could talk so much more. In fact, Marcus, I'm, I, as I'm listening to Kevin talk about his experience here, I couldn't help but think of an earlier conversation that you and I had in a similar vein. And we referenced the young lady in um, in Ohio, Nikki King, who I believe was written about in, a, in an issue of The Atlantic, who is doing something similar uh, there. And having you know, Kevin, for me, having worked in our court system as a as a probation parole officer years ago, you know, I see how important it is to have these alternative programs, you know, just sending people into the prison industrial complex is never is never a good idea. And I know we're having deeper conversations around that in this country. You talked before we went to break, you used the word connection and the importance of connection. And I think that that is a is at the heart of what at least goes on in the William Friday Fellowship, right? Connecting people from different areas, connecting across difference, as Meredith likes to say, and Meredith, please, by all means, feel free to join in here. But that's a part of the work, you know, the William Friday Fellowship, and I didn't mention, which is a program of the of the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative and, you know, that whole word leadership and what that means. So, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about what has it meant to be in the Friday Fellowship and how do you see it impacting your work uh, in, in, in this social work area? Well, the, the Friday Fellowship is, I, I should say it was challenging at the beginning. I am shy. <laughs> it was, uh, told, all right, we're going to convene and we're going to meet at this place. And we kind of have these uh, books that led us to this place. And there was kind of an outline of the day, but it was also very free to, you know, we're invited to do this, but we don't have to. It was, it was overwhelming. And I realized this, this anxiety that I felt is the anxiety that I feel as a human being meeting any new person. That is the anxiety I feel about connection. Mm. This fear that I have about being vulnerable as a human being. And at the end of the day, that's what the Friday Fellowship is for me. It mm. is this space where I get to practice being a human being and trying to connect with another mm. person, mm. trying to connect with many. And it's, you know, I even 
at moments where I may not think I'm my best self or I'm not, I didn't show up the way I wanted and we continue moving forward and I I'm safe. I'm Mm -hmm. honored. And it's amazing because the fellows have so many different backgrounds and lived experiences. And um, I think it's, yeah, the best of North Carolina um, showing up, but that's what it is has been for me. All right. Well, wonderful. Meredith, I, I, Marcus and I definitely want to invite you into the conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, what are you hearing here? You know, and, and Kevin has just used the word that, you know, we hear a lot in these convenings showing up. How are you going to show up? Right. And, and being thoughtful and intentional about that, but please, by all means, jump into this conversation. Yeah, I've been so appreciative of just the opportunity to listen in and to hear more about Kevin's work. I remember that phone call that Kevin mentioned earlier, um, where he called and asked such great questions about what this journey, to use another word that's come up, um, could entail. And I appreciate that. Like, it's a move I get, like, let's talk first. Like, what will this be? Like, and can we, can we arrive at some shared language about what this could look like? And I think what's so curious to me about this moment is I, I think, alternative spaces came up earlier, right? I mean, we're living in some ways in alternative times and the fellowship is always at its heart, a proposition of uh, getting outside the norm. Like, can we create a space? I know Darren likes to um, give me the word container to mirror that back to me. <laughs> create a space where um, where norms are challenged that is alternative in some way. And can we look to um, different models of being a different practices to, to keep uh, getting to know one another um, better um, and in different ways. And so I think um, it's, it is my truth that there is no such thing as the Friday fellowship. It's just not everyone Mm -hmm. is having an experience of invitations that we are extending right now. And so over its 25 year history, different people have extended different invitations to practice together. And right now this fellowship class, it happens to be hearing many invitations filtered through my scholarship and lens and our conversations, Darren, with your Mm -hmm. history here in the state and certainly wanting to honor also Hunter Corn's contributions as such a Mm -hmm. long time, a longstanding member and resident of North Carolina. So that's kind of the lens of the current invitation. And there is no one fellowship journey or fellowship practice. Even we are working with a convening model um, that we're we're trying out with the current cohort. Um, And it is all about a a practice um, of being human with one another and having enough humility to, um, to just sit with a word I've been using a lot lately is how tender this season is in just different ways. It's a word that can go in all different directions. And there's something very tender about the invitations that we extend. Like, can we sit quietly with one another and quiet um, just how hard it is to do that and, and, and still reach for one another. So I appreciate just the reflections of it's true, Kevin, like, the journey. Where is it going? Um, after seminar five, there will be seminar six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to sort of interject a query here for both Meredith and, and Kevin. I'm thinking about two things. One, um, I think it was Kevin who made a point about meritocracy and also vulnerability. And I'm thinking about, and I, I was just having, it's funny, I was just having a conversation with one of my classes about um, whether or not America is actually a meritocracy as it, you know, as it but have its citizens believe. Um, But assuming that it is, right, um, I mean, assuming that America is, in fact, a meritocracy, then I think it's safe to say that that we're socialized really to be 
competitors with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to be vulnerable, but to be kind of antagonistic and comp- individualized competitors um, within a meritocratic system that rewards that way of being social. And so my question really for both of you is um, really twofold. What does it mean to practice vulnerability within that context? And why is it valuable mm-hmm. <laughs> to practice vulnerability, <laughs> especially in a society where and, you know, it it isn't it isn't apparent to me that vulnerability is rewarded, right? Um, at least not not in the way that you know a kind of rugged individualism mm-hmm. is is more prone to be rewarded. So, if that question, if those if those queries make sense, uh, Meredith, Kevin, I mean, h- however you all want to want to address it, address them, I should say. <laughs> Kevin, would you want to jump in first, or where? How are you? I'm happy. What, what works best? That's a great, great question. If you want to go first, Maria. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll take a stab. You know, why practice vulnerability? I, you know, thank you for another V word. Hello, alliteration. I think the valuation, right? I appreciate that. I'm always gonna lean like it's a practice. I can't help myself, right? Like. I think vulnerability for me is an invitation to question the values I've received, right? Like fellowship as a practice, Mm -hmm. as I receive it, like it invites you to question the values we've inherited, like mutuality, reciprocity. Why are they further down the ladder than competition, right? And so I think we're one of the motifs at the, uh, that we're leaning into for this next seminar weekend is the motif of a ladder. And what is it about this climbing that we've all been instructed to where, where are we going? Where's the ladder going? And who are we skipping on on our way? You know, what, what's at the end? So I think it's interesting to think about pairing the ladder, the motif or the image or the sign or the symbol of the ladder with a question about what must it do to die a good death? Because inherent in both of both the image of the ladder and that question are a lot of assumptions about values. Like, what are you going to value? And can we value one another enough to get off the ladder or to recognize that the rung of the ladder we're standing on is on someone else's neck? Like, that's what fellowship wants us to do is to say, like, actually, when we can say that thing that's your sacred is killing me, like that's the work as I receive it and understand it in fellowship. And it, it takes to go back to, I think, sort of a metric of time that I've heard across the conversation. It takes time to s- settle into a vulnerability. You know, I think we've got two years, but it's the work of a lifetime. You know, it's work of lifetimes. It's work of generations. You know, how much time does it take to unlearn what we've inherited or to remember the value of other systems it just mm-hmm. takes time and time and time. So I'm not sure, Kevin, if that queued up as something for you in terms of a reflection. That definitely did. And so much of the, I guess, the value of the Friday Fellowship and to answer your question is deconstructing everything that I know. Mm-hmm. Why, why am I, why do I believe so firmly in X value? Why do I hold this dear? How I show up in spaces, my socialization and just questioning, um, slowing down first and then questioning these. um, I can only do that if I'm vulnerable. Uh, So it's, yeah, I I don't know that we are meritocracy at all. (laughs) Furthest from it, obviously, but. Really, Kevin? I I was going to say, we are anyway, go ahead. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I I love being in a a space though where the vulnerability is celebrated. So mm-hmm. it is this shift. And when I when I enter into the Friday fellowship, it it feels like I'm entering a different place, a different mm-hmm. landscape. And mm-hmm. everyone's on this journey together. And then I try to carry that back with me in the work that I do and how I am um, here in Asheville. Right. Well, Kevin and, and Meredith, we, we re- deeply want to thank you for uh, this engaging conversation. And Marcus has raised so many ongoing questions. I, I am interested at a later point of, you know, even having Kevin back to talk more deeply about the Veterans Court. And to talk about, you know, his time, if he's open to doing that, to talking about his time serving in our military. And one of the reasons why I'm deeply interested in that um, is because the country is headed towards its 250th anniversary. Right. America 250. You know, I'm deeply right in the middle of the conversations around that, you know, and and. And I'm interested in hearing from uh, Kevin's perspective, if we can get him back here again in another conversation with us, that how does his time in the United States military and now even doing this social work and working with veterans, recognizing that we don't do enough to care for those who who have made this ongoing project in many instances possible? How does that leave him feeling about this 250th anniversary of this American experience and this American project? Um, So that is really emerging for me and resonating in my mind as I think about it. And I don't know what you're thinking there as well, brother. Yeah, really, really big question. And uh, yeah, I I think as we wrap up here, I I would be I would would really enjoy engaging Kevin further and probably Meredith as well, because I think that this is probably a part of this. This is probably pertinent to the work that she's doing um, with the with the Friday Fellowship. But talking more about this idea of culturally, I think I think the term you used was was culturally congruent care. Mm -hmm. Right. What that looks like within the context of social work. Is this an idea that um, that is found in other care-based fields like clinical psychology, maybe, I don't know, perhaps it is, but um, this, is a, this is a term that is, is new to me um, and I'm, I'm fascinated to, to learn more about it. And also maybe to think about culturally congruent care within the context of our conversation about practicing vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? What does it mean to kind of simultaneously and relationally practice culturally congruent care and vulnerability? Right. Um, so right. I think that probably could be a, a, another layer of the conversation that we have with Kevin um, when he comes back. Not if, right. <laughs> that's right. When he comes back. <laughs> so Marcus is already holding him to it. And, uh, and I really would. And Marcus, I, you know, uh, I, I want to, you know, love to hear from Kevin. I think our audience is probably going to want to hear about ways that they can actually be helpful. How can they help support the work that he's doing? Um, you know, we are all about, you know, what can we do to strengthen our communities is at the heart of what the William Friday Fellowship is seeking to do through the fellows who have gone through that. I've had the chance to engage 
previous fellows who who have come through the program and there is this kind of a camaraderie that exists among them um and you hope that that bleeds over into the larger society that's the idea as they go work in their individual communities and i you know as we as we come to an end in this show i i can't help but reflect upon the conversations that we've had with other friday fellows with dr ryan emmanuel and his name down here in raleigh is emerging a lot he's very active in the community community here. You know, I've had uh, conversations with other members of the Lumbee, of the Lumbee community, and he comes out of that community. And so I think about Dalton Dockery and his work out on the coast and Desandra, you know, who is doing her work down in, um, in Fayetteville. But there's so much that we've learned from these ongoing conversations with the fellows. So we look forward to doing that again. But as we come to an end, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us. It's a pleasure to be back in here with you, brother. And just to be in conversation, I enjoyed each and every time I've enjoyed it with Kevin and with Meredith. But as we get ready to close out, we want to remind you again that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at whshow at bpr.org. And Marcus and I will look forward to talking with you again next time. Take care.